Thank you. I have friends in this service. That's very nice. Um, we're going to Isaiah 61, preaching from the Old Testament uh, text in the lectionary today. Not a text I've preached one from before, but uh, it really feels right. really feel like this is the word of the Lord for today, truly. Um, Isaiah 61, beginning with verse 10, and then we'll read the first three verses of Isaiah 62. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. I hope you'll really pay attention to this phrase. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I'll read that one more time. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just pray now that through the proclamation of your word that we would uh, have a transaction today that is not informational but transformational because we know that to experience you, to see you, is to be changed by you and how we long to be changed, how we long to, um, Lord, for you to reveal yourself knowing that whenever we see you for who and what you are, uh, that we become like you. And that's what we ask for today, for that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds uh, through the way that we will hear and receive your word now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, Amen. So quick survey, who got clothes for Christmas? Any clothes at all? Some clothes? Some of you did not get clothes for Christmas? We can do a drive for you later if that would be helpful. We, um, if you got toboggans or gloves... I guess, you know, too bad because you'll never need those again. Global warning, y'all, we're done. We never, it will never get truly cold again. Um, no, getting clothes at Christmas is a, is a long tradition. And um, I don't know, I just, just somehow just got captured this week by this phrase in Isaiah about what it means to be robed in righteousness, to be clothed in the garments of salvation. Um, to be clothed in righteousness, to be clothed in, in these particular garments of salvation will mean to be clothed in garments that are not our own, uh, garments that are inevitably God's alone, that he drapes on us, which means at times it may feel like an awkward fit uh, because truly we are learning how to wear clothes that are not always native to us. Paul talks about us putting on Christ, which can be a bit awkward, which reminds me, by the way, this week I've thought about how, I don't know, uh, my own awkward attempts. Uh, I've had a lot of different fashion reinventions over the years, and they continue to kind of ebb and flow. When I was in middle school, I went through a long, very urban phase. And in particular, I remember when I was in the seventh grade was the year that Boys to Men made it really big. Do y'all remember Boys to Men? Kind of an R&B group. They had this, this style that I thought was so cool in that they would wear ties with like sport coats and shorts. And I thought that was such a cool look. So at my, I was 6'2 or 3 already, 150 pounds, 
I wore these little glasses, but every day to school, I would wear shirts and ties with a sport coat and shorts every day for a year. That is to say, except for days when I decided to go casual, because again, it was still an urban phase, and I, was, I really loved this Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, that was when Charles Barkley and Hersey Hawkins and Manute Bowl and those guys were there. And I remember I used to often wear like a Charles Barkley jersey, which was red, and I had a matching uh, red in the color of the 76ers, a red turtleneck that I wore underneath that with a gold chain, which, uh, <laughs> super cool look, y'all. I'm thinking about bringing that back. The gold chain with the red turtleneck and the red, and, and the red jersey, I felt like, I felt like was awesome at the time, but I did. I would always sort of emulate sort of whatever, like whoever I was sort of following at the time. The next year, Jodeci was big, not Boys to Men, so I had a big black kind of coat with a hoodie that looked like, uh, what was his name? I can't think of that guy's, JoJo's uh, coat. So anyway, I went through these different phases that probably seemed very, very awkward because, you know, they were just clothes. They were styles that were not native to me, and I was sort of struggling to find my own in this way. And I keep thinking, and I'm having fun with all that, but just what it means to wear these clothes that often feel sort of misfit to us, but that clearly we need to be fitted. And even my prayer for the sermon has been that this would be a message that would be very tailored, that would literally be, these would be clothes, there would be garments that would be tailored for each son and daughter in a very particular way as we learn how to wear these robes that, that we have not earned, that we could not give to ourselves. With that in view, I want to go to another text, Luke chapter 15. Really, man, I didn't see this coming. Again, did feel really like a, a word from the Lord, especially when you consider the fact that Isaiah 61 is a text that's especially significant for Jesus. He refers back to Isaiah 61 often. It's significant in the ministry of Jesus. So I'm convinced that when we get to this uh, parable of the prodigal son, um, and I want us to, be, to re- really read it through this lens this morning of what the prodigal son will wear and how God dresses him, that I do think that there's an intentional allusion here to Isaiah 61, as we'll see as we go. But with that in view, uh, Luke 15, beginning with verse 11, then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. And I'll stop a little bit as we go. This text in the ancient world is a scandalous one and really really still would be in a tribal, more agrarian culture, more rural culture, um, where this act of a son coming to his father and asking for inheritance early really is, is unheard of. Because what you're essentially saying to a father is, I wish you were dead. It's as if the only value that the father would have to him is the money that would be provided for him as inheritance upon his death. So truly an offensive thing that he asked for. But the father acquiesces to the request. He gives the son exactly what he wants. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't shame him in any way. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Or if you believe the report of the elder brother, a few verses later, he will say he spent the money on parties and prostitutes. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. Now note this, that at no point in this story are we going to see where the prodigal has this profound spiritual awakening where he just starts to feel really bad about how he treated his father. That's not what happens here. Very simply, He's in need. He runs out of money. It is just that. He's a long way from home. He can't pay for any of this himself. And so the beginning of his repentance is not some profound guilt. It's not some deep sense of shame. It's just that he runs out of food. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country 
who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And here is where we see just how far the prodigal son has really gone. Because especially growing up as in, a, in a Jewish home, you could not be further away from your tradition, your family, your heritage, than to be working in a hog pen. Because swine are considered to be ceremonially unclean. So now the good Jewish boy, the kosher Jew, is now working here in the pig pen as far from home as he could possibly be. He hasn't just rejected his father. He's rejected his culture. He's rejected his community. He's rejected really everything that would give him a sense of identity before. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, once again, not some profound spiritual revelation, he's just hungry, and he remembers pragmatically How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Now at this point in the story, as the prodigal is in deep need and he's just hungry, and he remembers that even the hired hands at his father's house have plenty to eat, All he thinks up here, he's not looking for grace. He's not looking for mercy. He's not looking to just kind of throw himself on his father's mercy. He's making a business arrangement. He's got a business proposal in mind. Because at this point, for as much as he has lost, he has struck out on his own. He has attempted to show that he can live and do this without his father's provision or protection. Now, at least when he comes back home, if his father will accept this agreement and let him work at a hire, as a hired hand, he still gets to keep a little bit of dignity because at least he won't be like, you know, he just goes to live under his father's house wearing the same old clothes, be, being his father's proud son. At least now he'll be paying back the debt. If he comes back as a hired hand, he'll be able to pay something back. He'll be paying his own way. So he still doesn't quite have in mind totally swallowing his dignity. As much as he's lost, he still has enough pride to say, I'll come back, I'll make, a, I'll make a proposal to my father. If he'll let me just work out in the fields, then I can begin to pay back something of what I owe. In other words, he'd still be pulling his own weight. So back to the text. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and he kissed him. The son who comes back as a spectacle the one who flipped off not only his father, but the entire community. Now they see the son come back. And Kenneth Bailey, um, who wrote this wonderful book, Poet and Peasant, talks a lot about the Middle Eastern kind of culture around all of this, uh, makes a, a beautiful point here about how now in the way the father responds, instead of the people in the community, in the village, staring at this strange spectacle of the shamed son coming back, the father makes an even bigger spectacle of himself. Because in antiquity, no one of prestige, no no dignified man with money and influence would ever run. I hate it whenever I think about that because I can't help but think about the police song, Englishman in New York, A Gentleman Can Walk But Never Run. Sting did not just coin this. This was true thousands of years ago. A gentleman never ran. That was true. And and, and so now it's just a sight, the very spectacle that the father is the one who takes off running for his son, makes himself a, a bigger spectacle than the son is, therefore drawing the stares of the community for himself. He's, he'll, he'll be the one to bear the awkward looks. 
And when he grabs his son, he doesn't just embrace him. The verb in the Greek there suggests that he kisses him over and over again, kisses him repeatedly, like this just deep, deep display of affection and love poured out for his son. The son then tries to go into his rehearsed speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, cutting him off, said to his slaves, quickly, and here's the part I want you to really pay attention to, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The very first thing the father does for his son when he comes back home is he clothes him. And he asked not only for a robe, he asked for the best robe, which means it's not a robe that belonged to his son before. It's his robe. This is the robe that he would wear only to the great high feast. This is the robe that he would only pull out for special occasions. That is the robe that he commands to be draped on his son. The sandals which will show that he's not a slave, that he belongs in the house rather than being a servant. The signet ring of his father's own authority. Come bring out the very best of my clothes and put them on my boy. Which on one hand is a wonderful scene, right? I mean, it's so beautiful. But if you can imagine how much the prodigal now is having to swallow his own pride to come back in this amount of shame and disrepute and now have to be clothed in his father's fine robe to be put on display. Let's, in fact, let's finish this part of the text. And the father says, get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. So again, he's not just doing this personally. He's restoring the son, not just in relationship with himself, but with the entire community. He invites everybody over. This is a time before refrigeration. So if you kill the fatted calf, you got to eat it all that day, which would feed over a hundred guests. So the whole community is invited out now for his son to be shown off on display, the father who's proud of him. But he's got to sit there now wearing his dad's robe, wearing his dad's ring, wearing these sandals, none of which he could earn. To me, that's kind of the central conceit of the story. This, in the teachings of Jesus, is what repentance looked like. It's not being especially sorry for your sin. It's not saying you're sorry over and over again. It's not a particular prayer. What repentance looks like in the story of the prodigal son is swallowing your pride, being okay with being dependent, allowing God to clothe you in a robe that is not your own, with a robe of righteousness, with the garment of salvation, allowing God to feed you when you're unable to feed yourself, allowing God to care for you when you would want to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That, in gospel terms, is what repentance looks like. Letting God do for you the things that you cannot do for yourself, which inevitably involves a kind of humiliation. The prodigal son has wandered very far from home, but in the end, He's willing to let God do, for, do these things for him. He's willing to let his father do things for him that he's not able to do for, for himself. He's able to swallow his dignity. He's able to swallow his pride. And that's how he's able to be restored. Very, very different story for the elder son. And in fact, I like to tell people when we said this, I wish I could throw out people's headings in their Bible that even call this the story of the prodigal son because really, this isn't the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of two lost sons. That, that makes much more sense of what we actually get because there's really as much attention paid on the elder as the prodigal 
and they're more similar than you might think. Let's go on just a bit further. So in verse 25, now is that, you know, the father is, they're killing the fatted calf, the party is jumping, jumping. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young, even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends." But when this son of yours came back, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Interesting just how similar these two boys are when you get beyond the surface. The one prodigal son had a public act of rebellion and defiance, which means he flips off his father, takes the inheritance, and leaves, bringing shame and humiliation and reproach to his father. Now the elder son is just as publicly and just as demonstratively going to bring reproach to his father, but in a very different way. Because now you see what happens is they're throwing the party, the fatted calf has been killed, music and dancing are going on, In this particular culture, the custom is if a wealthy, dignified man throws a party, the elder son always plays the host. It makes a statement to the guest of saying, like, because the elder son, this is supposed to be your best and your brightest. It makes a statement that says, look, I'm giving you my very best. All I have to give you is yours. So the elder son is the person who is, meets everybody at the door. He takes everybody's coats. He's the one responsible to make sure that everybody has enough to drink. He represents his father at the party. This is the role of the elder son in Middle Eastern culture whenever a father were to throw a feast. Not only does the elder son not greet the guest, take everybody's go- coats, take everybody's goats. He doesn't do that either. <laughs> Fill everybody's drinks. Not only does he not do that, he publicly challenges his father. Guests are already there. There already is music and dancing. And he chooses this as the moment to vent all this frustration to his father. And listen to what he says. In the same way that the prodigal had had this whole idea that if I come back, I could work as a hired hand. He says, I have worked like a hired hand for you. I've worked like a slave. It is the deep suspicion of all elder sons that anything good that we have from God, it's because we work for it. It's because we've earned it. Those of us who've never really left the back porch have always stayed more or less in the Father's house. There is this deep suspicion, if I do have anything good from God, it's because at least I've tried really hard and I've done my best. You know, There's still that degree of ego hanging on. Interesting then that by the end of the story, the elder son is much more lost than the prodigal. Because really, there's the same path offered for both of them. The father doesn't scold the elder son. He says, don't you understand? All I have is yours. I'd throw you a party anytime. He extends the same grace. But the question left at the end of the story, it's, it's open-ended. Because what, what is the elder son going to do with this now? Will he be able, like the prodigal, to swallow his pride? Will he be able to put down his ego? 
Will he be able to put down his own sense of self and allow his father to serve him? Or will he continue to bull in this kind of bitterness and resentment? That is the path of repentance in Luke's gospel. I'm convinced the teachings of Jesus in general is always the question. Are you willing to be the one who's flat on your back? Are you willing instead of being the person who pulls yourself up by your own bootstraps to allow God to come and clothe you, God to come and feed you, God to allow himself to God to allow God to care for you in the ways that only God can. This is really hard for those of us, which I think is most of us who want to prove that we can make it on our own. It is infinitely easier to serve other people than to allow God to serve us, than to allow other people to serve us. Uh, To be served by another is to endure a kind of humiliation. And yet I'm convinced there is grace in humiliation. (laughs) There is grace in need and dependency. Uh, So I was thinking these last few days, I think partly because it's this time of year, this is my first Christmas in Tulsa, first time I've ever not been in North Carolina for Christmas, which is a fairly big adjustment. And um, reflecting on how much my life has changed in this season, what's changed, what's stayed the same, I thought a lot this week about a dream I haven't thought of in a long time. And I don't typically remember dreams this vividly, but these just especially haunted me. I tend to think they were deeply spiritual dreams. It was a little over a year ago, a little before Christmas of last year, where I was still in this season of so much transition in my life. And um, to some, I think the summary tells you plenty, living at my parents' house for a season, which, by the way, is not a cool thing to do when you're 36, as I was at the time. Nobody likes to move back home at 36. Not that my parents aren't great. They were in the last service. They're wonderful. But there is something uniquely disreputable about coming back home at 36. I mean, I, I was not okay with this. And for that matter, I hope I can say this the right way because I was very grateful. I mean, you know, the Lord provided in different ways, but I was doing some things I wasn't proud of. I was ghostwriting, which paid the bills. But I, I don't know how to put it. That for me, it's like it's not your own stuff. Something about that just felt disreputable to me, even though I was grateful for the opportunity. You know, some people... Uh, sell drugs. Some people make porn. Some people ghostwrite. This was sort of like, <laughs> this was my, th- this is what I'm doing. It's just you, gotta, you still got to pay the bills. So this is where I am. Again, grateful for the opportunity to be able to do anything at all, but not exactly feeling awesome about myself. And I remember a night in particular, I went to sleep and just feeling really sad. It had been a sad day. It had been a hard day. And I had, and, and so I had this dream. It's, it's weird how vivid this is even now, actually. I went to bed kind of hungry, I think. Not because my parents wouldn't feed me or whatever. I was just, you know, <laughs> but I was hungry. And I remember it was like, it was like a dream within a dream. I, I mean, I thought that I woke up in that room. And I thought that I was awakened by the doorbell downstairs. And I got up, uh, still feeling very sad and all that. And there was this older man at the door. It was an older white male uh, kind of mid-sized, but he had like big white bushy hair and a white, bright white kind of mustache. And I just remember having the most tender eyes. I remember that the way that he looked at me, it just, I just felt such tenderness and compassion. I felt so seen and known. I felt such warmth coming from this man. And he said, Jonathan, I, just, I was just in the neighborhood and I heard you were having a hard night. Just felt like you might could use some company and a meal. And I thought I would take you out to get something to eat. And we were saying to him in the dream, like, I knew that part of Charlotte. I mean, like, hey, you know, this is 3 o'clock in the morning. Nothing around here is open. 
And he said to me, no, I have some places to take you that you, you don't know anything about, which I laughed later when I thought I was reminded of Jesus telling the disciples, I have food to eat that you know not of. <laughs> I have places to go that you don't know anything about. And he put me in his car. We went to the, and, and sure enough, we got to like this diner that was, it felt really mystical. You know, it's like everything at that point in the dream had been kind of realistic and it was all places I knew very well. But then in the middle of a familiar stretch of, of town there was this diner I'd never seen. And he took me in, and the atmosphere was so cozy and warm and inviting. I remember sitting at the table with him, and there, he, there was, he laughed so easy. He made me laugh. I just remember feeling so safe and warm and loved and so happy that I was there. And yet, all of a sudden, feeling real fidgety and uncomfortable. Kind of like, what am I doing here with this guy? How am I letting him take care of me like this? That feels weird. Just, just being uncomfortable, just feeling fidgety. So I excused myself to go to the restroom, and this is I would do in real life sometimes, go to, and I check my phone, like I'm washing my hands, checking the phone, looking at Twitter and Facebook and email, and, and I just remember all of a sudden thinking of all these things in the moment that I felt like needed to get done, I, and I remember noting that the car we rode over in didn't have a lot of gas, and thinking, oh, I should put gas in the car, and thinking of errands, I ought to run. I haven't been to the grocery store. I need to pick up some bottled water. So without saying anything to the man, I got back in the car that we rode in, filled it up with gas, went to the grocery store, running errands, thinking that this was only going to be a couple minutes. And, and yet when I got back to the diner, I realized I'd been gone for hours and the place was closed down. The man wasn't there. And I remember being heartbroken because everything in me wanted to be with that man enjoying that experience. I mean, I, I felt the love of the father through this person. And yet, one, I, in my way, I was distracted and busy. But two, I think it was just, I was so uncomfortable with the arrangement. Like, I didn't know how to be cared for in that way. So this dream finished up. One of the weirdest things that ever happened to me went right from that dream into a second dream, where immediately I was back in the same bed again, and once again I was awakened by the doorbell. Now, this is the logic of dreams, so work with me. Clearly, I'm not making this up. Why would, you, why would I? Uh, so in, that, in this dream... Doorbell rings, and this time when I opened the door, it was an African-American female in her 50s. And I don't remember how I knew this, but in context of this dream, I knew that later that evening, because I was sad, I had called the Episcopal church I was attending, asking for somebody to pray with me. And apparently, they had this new thing where like, they send people to go pray at your house in the middle of the night. I think that sounds like a super safe ministry. You guys should volunteer for that. A dollar prayer, somebody shows up in the door in the middle of the night, hey, can I pray with you? But she showed up and she was so sweet. I remember in particular that I felt the same thing from her that I felt from the man. It was like it was the same spirit, you know? It was the same warmth, the same compassion, the same deep joy. It's like she had the same kind of maternal care that I experienced paternally from the man. I felt so nurtured and she, oh, she was so sweet. So we sat down in the living room, we start talking. I again feel safe, warm, like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And then I get restless again. So I told her, hey, let me go and, and, and get us something to eat. And I thought, again, logic of dreams, I thought I would make Sundays for this person. <laughs> Before I did this, though, I thought, I should check my phone, check my phone. And then I started going through the rooms, and I realized the house isn't really straight, my parents' house. And so then I start cleaning bedrooms. She's not going to see. They're cleaning up other parts of the house, just, like, just trying to spruce things up. I'm dusting things. I'm putting stuff away. Totally getting lost in, in, in all of that. I, at my parents' house, they've got a, a, another little refrigerator in the garage. And so then I went out there to finally make the Sundays, and I took my time with that. I'm, I'm pouring caramel and whipped cream and trying to get them just right. 
finally walk out in the living room with these two bowls with Sundays, and right when I do, I see the lady's not there, and I hear tires squealing out of the parking lot, and she leaves. Same thing that happened the first dream, where like over, I, I thought this was just a few minutes, but it had really been a long time, and finally they left. And I remember feeling so terrible because like, this is all I want is to be with this person. I know this is someone that God sent. I know this is what I need. But I couldn't quite get still enough and settled enough to just accept it. I wanted to, I, I insisted on playing the host. No, don't take care of me. I'll take care of you. Let me get something for you. And I felt like somehow in the course of those dreams, God was illuminating some pretty profound stuff in me in terms of just how uncomfortable I really am with allowing God to care for me in these tender places. Just how much I want to resist that and say, oh no, I can do something to pay you back. Let me work as a hired hand. Can we make a deal? <laughs> Let me, well, maybe you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Maybe I could do something to at least repay you. Not good, and not, that's been so much of what this season has been about, is having for the first time in my life to be okay with being the person who says, oh, I actually have some really deep human needs here. I really need to be taken care of. I can't take care of myself. I thought I could, but I can't. I can't pretend that I don't need help. I really do need help. I need God. I need other people. And I can tell you that to this very second, in all honesty, I despise that place. There is still enough old self in me that just raises up against that, that wants to be the person that, again, pulls myself up by my own bootstraps. Hey, look at me. I can endure anything. I can survive anything. I don't need anybody. I want to appear competent and strong. That's why I think part of this whole prodigal son thing can, can be a little deceitfully simple. Because on one hand, it's like, yeah, let God love you. Receive mercy. Who doesn't love that? Actually, it's a lot harder than it sounds. Because the ego protests to the bitter end. There are so many reasons that we have to want to, to others and to ourselves to, to appear that we're stronger than we really are, to appear that we've got it more together than we really do. Almost to underscore this point, right? So my parents are in town. They're staying with me for about a week. And my mom's one of those really sweet people. Like her way of, her love language, you know, is she loves to take care of people. She wants to come in and do all the laundry. And she wants to do like, I had done a lot of stuff trying to get the house perfect before they got here. But inevitably, my mom's gonna find anything, you know, light bulbs that she could replace. There, I, there was some laundry, has it done? She immediately starts doing that. And especially in this season where so much of been in my life is, hey, look at the stuff I can do on my own. I have my own house and my own stuff. There was this initial like, oh, you can't do that for me. Now, I did let her ultimately. And I think I'm supposed to do that. But it but it's something kind of rose up there of, of feeling uncomfortable with this all over again. Because I think no matter how many times we're served in this way, there's still something again about the ego that just protests that. When the father comes out saying, let me give you my robe. Oh, no, 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 what I've got on is fine. When the father says, let me serve you in this way. Oh, no, no, I'm okay. This is Jesus washing Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, 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 no. I can wash your feet, but you can't do this for me. To which Jesus responds, Peter, if you don't let me wash your own stinky feet, you have no part with me. That's why I say again, in New Testament terms, believe it or not, this is the very heart of repentance. <laughs> it's not feeling sorry enough. It's not feeling guilty enough. It's not saying you're sorry enough times. It's about hitting a place, not out of piety. Often we only get this place out of pure need where we say, okay, God, I will, I'll admit, I am powerless. I, I cannot take care of myself. I'm going to let you 
care for me in ways that I can't care for myself. That's the very essence of salvation, is to allow God to drape you in a robe that you cannot afford, that you could not pay for, that you could not earn, but letting God do it. And that's what a life of salvation looks like. It's becoming the kind of person that allows God to do for you the things that you cannot do for yourself. It even involves, as much as I dislike saying it, letting other people care for you in ways that you can't care for yourself. Nobody likes this, but I'm telling you, when somebody gets really sick and deals like like a, a very serious illness or a car accident, I've heard these stories over and over again, or just any sort of personal trauma, loss, divorce, whatever it might be, hear these stories over and over again from people who say, I'd never choose to go through that again. And yet the thing that they found that would most transform them was being the person in need and allowing themselves to be cared for. There, there is something so powerful about that, something I think so transformative about that. I wanna keep this relatively simple. It just brings me around to just, just this simple question. I wonder where and how it is right now in your life where there's still an attempt to say, I got this, when in reality, you don't got this. You don't get this. Go-go gadget verb tenses. You know what I'm trying to say. There's still this thing inside of you that says, I can take care of myself, when really you can't take care of yourself. There's still this reluctance to let God do for you, to let others do for you. That doesn't sound spiritual. It sound, doesn't it sound more spiritual to be the martyr who does it for everybody else and takes care? That always feels more righteous. But God, the, righteous, the, robes, of righteousness, the, the, the robes of righteousness that God has for you, you can't cover yourself in. God has to dress you. You have to let him dress you, which inevitably means first we have to disrobe some old garments. We have to take off the old. We have to be willing to allow God to dress us, to allow God to care for us in some naked vulnerable places. I think so many of us still have an image of God where we're afraid to let him in to the parts that are broken because we're actually afraid that he would shame us. We're actually afraid that he would exploit that in some way as if God is the one who wants to show off our flaws and insecurities. And yet the beautiful thing we see from the beginning of the story, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God's the one who provides the clothes when you're naked. In the New Testament terms, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers weakness. Love covers. It doesn't exploit. God uses conviction, but God never uses shame. God is not into shaming anybody anytime about anything. God's into covering the things that are most naked and vulnerable and exposed. God is into clothing us. God is the one who clothes us with his own very best robe. God is the one who covers and conceals, not exploits. Not like the sons of Noah who exposed their father when he was drunk. God covers us in all the ways that we're most, that we're most ashamed. And I just, I just can't tell you, it's hitting me right now in a, in a unique way all morning, really, is just how beautiful and powerful that is. That instead of, I, keep, I have that image of Noah's sons disrobing, ha ha, look at dad, he's drunk and naked. We have weird stories in the Old Testament. <laughs> God's the one who covers. No, 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 this is not, it, it doesn't matter that it's your fault. Does it matter that you're the one who got yourself in that place? The gospel doesn't say you made your bed, now lie in it. It's the opposite of that. But I think the, but the only way that we receive this grace is that we have to be willing to endure the humiliation. 
We have to be willing to swallow our pride. That's why at the end of the story, the prodigal is so close, but the elder son who's still under his father's roof is further away than ever is because he can't swallow his own pride, his own need for dignity, his own need to preserve his image of being strong, competent, faithful, whatever, is what keeps him from the presence of God. I'm convinced that it's the thing that's most keeping some of you from pressing into God's presence right now. Is there still this way that you still feel the need to show that you're strong, to show that you're competent, to show that, you, that you're dependable, instead of allowing yourself to fall apart and allowing God to be the one who clothes, who cares, who protects? Stand with me, if you would. And Lord, I just pray very boldly and very simply, as I feel like you've given me to pray throughout these services, as this is a word about being clothed with robes of righteousness, with a garment of salvation, tailor this word to particular sons and daughters, to where it fits just right. It's your robe, but Lord, that you would custom fit it, Lord, for particular stories and particular struggles. God, we have so many reasons to want to self-protect, and the ego is, um, no matter how many times we try to put it to death, just keeps coming back up raging, wanting to, to show to the world around us, wanting to show to our friends and family that we can do it on our own. God, I just pray that you would deliver us from the bondage of that, and that you would allow us to enter into that humiliating, liberating grace that allows us to be naked and in need of you to clothe us, that allow us to be hungry and in need of you to feed us, that allow us to be cold and in need of being wrapped up in your robe of righteousness. So God, just for this moment, we, we put aside those old robes, we put aside those old clothes, and we pray that you would come and meet with us. And I pray very specifically, Lord, right now for anyone who's struggling with a sense of shame. I'm talking about whatever that thing is that you carry with you, that gnaws on your insides, that makes you say, if people knew this thing that I had done, or if people knew the way that I really am, if they knew what I really felt, they knew it was really in my heart, they'd reject me. I just pray right now in the strong name of Jesus Christ that everything that's been in darkness, that now you could bring it into the light of Christ's presence. It is safe. He does see you exactly as you are. He does see you in all of your brokenness. And yet he could not accept you more perfectly. Won't you let Jesus come and love you in those broken places? Don't kick him out. Don't slam the door to that room. Don't throw anything under the bed. He's not asking for any of that. He's come to make you clean. He's come to make you new. He, he's not looking for you to tidy anything up. He just wants all access into every room, every corridor of your heart. He doesn't need you to make him something to drink. He doesn't need you to accommodate him. He doesn't need your welcome in that way. He just needs your surrender that allows you to just say, to just throw yourself helplessly on his grace and say, God, I need you. God, I need you. And the very moment that you acknowledge your need, the very moment that you stop trying to impress, the very moment that you stop trying to manage your image is the moment that the embrace of the Father comes and he puts the robe on your shoulders. 
the signet ring on your hand, the sandals on your feet. Let him clothe you now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.